I'm Chad Main, and this is Technically Legal, a podcast about legal technology and innovation in the legal industry. Today's show, we talk to Scott Kelly. He's the founder of no-code workflow automation company, Community Lawyer. In today's episode, I talk to Scott Kelly. He's a co-founder of the legal tech company called Community Lawyer. Community Lawyer is a cool tool that legal service providers can use to create workflow automations without having to know code or be technical wizards. I'm a huge fan of workflow automation. We use it at Precipient for a bunch of tasks, like onboarding new projects, onboarding employees, and for certain types of customer support requests. I think automation is a great place for legal teams to start adding tech into their everyday work. If you've listened to a couple of these podcasts, you know in every episode I try to ask guests where they should start to add tech or innovation into their legal work. And in my opinion, automation is a perfect opportunity to do that. Apps like Community Lawyer make workflow automation easy. The app has a bunch of features, including letting users create forms to collect information, they can generate legal documents, and Community Lawyer also connects to a bunch of other legal practice management apps like Clio and payment companies like LawPay and Stripe. This is also a cool episode because it's coming full circle with a couple other guests that I talked to. I first learned about Community Lawyer, and by the way, if you want to find them on the web, it's community.lawyer. But I found out about the company from the weekly newsletter put together by Gabriel Tenenbaum. He learns the Legal Tech and Innovation Program at Suffolk Law School. I talked to him in episode nine about the cool stuff he's doing up there in legal education. So, hat tip to Gabriel for putting Scott and Community Lawyer on my radar. Also, I will put a link to Gabriel's newsletter on the episode page at tlpodcast.com. I highly recommend subscribing to it. The other connection that Scott and Community Lawyer have with the Technically Legal Podcast is Greg Suskin. I talked to him in episode 18. Greg's a well-known immigration lawyer who's been using tech and automation in his law firm for years. When I was talking to Scott for today's episode, I found out that Greg's firm also uses Community Lawyer. So let's get back to Scott. He launched Community Lawyer with a couple co-founders during his time at an incubator in New York called Blue Ridge Labs. The incubator was looking for projects that would further access to justice goals. Access to justice and pursuing law for the public good is not new to Scott. Before he got the legal tech bug, he worked for the ACLU. Although Scott grew up in Kansas City, he headed out east for college. In fact, he went to Ivy League schools, Yale for undergrad, and Columbia for law school. While many of his law school classmates were headed to bigger law firms and bigger paychecks, Scott found his calling in the public sector. Straight out of law school, he worked for the ACLU in Pennsylvania. Scott started as a fellow at the ACLU and then moved his way up the ranks. He started filing cases that impacted significant public policies, including one that provided more rights to individuals caught up in civil forfeiture proceedings, and he also helped fix a discriminatory housing ordinance. To be 100% frank, when I entered law school, I did the thing you're not supposed to do, which is I went being like, oh, this would be a great degree to have, a great background to have. It would set me up for all sorts of options going forward. Not really understanding that, in fact, having a JD can sometimes actually be limiting on a resume as opposed to opening doors. Um, so all to say, I didn't really know what I was doing, but I had this kind of vague notion that I would use the skills I developed in law school to have some sort of positive public impact. And the more I learned about the different options that were out there, I was like, oh, this public impact litigation seems super interesting. First of all, you get to pick your cases more or less. I mean, you try to find plaintiffs that you know fit with the constitutional case that you're trying to bring. You're aimed at systemic change, which I thought was really interesting. And uh, the ACLU, I think, is commonly sort of associated with being, uh, you know, super left wing and progressive. And there's definitely components of it like 
that that are sort of like that. But to me, what I found appealing about the ACLU was the commitment to sort of the Bill of Rights and protecting that and how that that sometimes meant taking unpopular positions um, in defense of, for example, free speech, as well as in, in defense of things that are really important, like racial justice and over-policing and things like that. So, you know, I submitted about a zillion, you know, at resumes to different places and, and, and finally got uh, the ACLU in Pennsylvania to actually, you know, give me an interview and kind of just went from there. I started out as a fellow and then after a year there, they hired me on as a staff attorney and I also did some policy work with them, which I found really interesting. You said you sent a bunch of resumes out. Were you also applying to the private sector, law firms and other places like that? Or was it all public sector related? It was all public sector. And and again, me being very naive about the process, I didn't realize you basically, to break into the public sector, particularly at, at shops like the ACLU, you have to come with funding for the first year with, via a fellowship. Um, and I thought it was like, oh, this is like a regular you know, job and you apply for it and you put in, but no, everybody who starts out at a lot of these organizations, they, they come with some sort of fellowship funding. So I eventually realized that, secured some fellowship funding, came to the ACLU saying, hey, you basically get me for free for a year. And then if they like you, then they'll hire you on, which in my case, I was fortunate enough to have happen and really loved working there. You know, amazing lawyers, level-headed lawyers who worked there, great advocacy team. Um, it, it, was, it was a great way to start a legal career. And what was your niche at the ACLU? It evolved over time. Um, you know, when I started out, they kind of uh, put me with all the other fellows, just, uh, you know, checking footnotes and, and doing a lot of kind of grunt work as you as you want to do when you start out um, at a law firm. But I think over time, I, I proved that, you know, I, I could take on more responsibility. And so more and more, they started to give me roles that um, allowed for me to kind of apply some, maybe not straightforward lawyering skills, but some skills that I, I felt like I brought to the table. So I did some blogging. Um, I, a big thing I worked on was um, civil asset forfeiture reform in Pennsylvania. I drafted model legislation, went to Harrisburg, talked to Republicans, Democrats, lobbied on behalf of changing civil forfeiture laws so that uh, police couldn't just like grab people's property without um, some sort of nexus with crime. And yeah, so I wore a lot of different hats. I did file some, you know, uh, some cases myself. The nice thing about the ACLU is it's it's a relatively small shop, at least on the state affiliate side. And so you get a lot of autonomy to kind of build your own cases. And, and that's what I did. Sounds like you did some cool stuff. What was your crowning moment or what's, what were you most proud of in your, your tenure there? That's interesting. I, I would say probably the most, uh, the proudest I was, was there was a, um, I won't name the city, but there was a city in, in Pennsylvania that had what we believed was a racially motivated rental ordinance that essentially allowed for the city to walk into an apartment and say, I think there's some sort of criminal activity going on here, but there was no actual burden of proof whatsoever. There was no proceeding. And then they could just unilaterally shut down the property, evict the, the folks who were living there and prevent the, uh, the landlords from actually uh, using that property for the next six months. And we're like, wait a minute, this is not, this is not constitutional. And so we actually wrote them a lot of letters because a lot of times we don't want to actually file against cities. You know, we, we would rather just get things resolved behind the scenes. And so had a lot of conversations with city officials, trying to get them to change their ways. And what you realize is a lot of times 
the folks who draft these laws are looking to make a political statement, right, to set themselves up for a higher office. And they don't particularly care if it's constitutional or not, because they don't pay the bill. The city pays the bill, right? So they're off to their next elected office, which is upward and outward, and they kind of leave the city holding the bag. Unfortunately, because of those incentives, we eventually did have to file a lawsuit. I, you know, I took lead on, you know, gathering all the facts from the various plaintiffs, finding the plaintiffs that we wanted to, you know, tell a story of and, and actually writing the lawsuit and brought a, what I thought was a pretty cool, um, very random excessive fines argument and that had, you know, citing some cases from like the 1800s and we had a judge uh, accept it. Um, I don't know if it was because of my, you know, my great lawyering or if it was because the ACLU has a certain level of cachet and they realize like if it's a lawsuit that's been filed by the ACLU, they got to pay attention. But the, the net net of all that was that, uh, you know, our, our plaintiffs were made whole. So folks who were just evicted without any sort of process whatsoever, they got some financial uh, recompense because of that. The landlords were made whole. And most importantly, what I think was a racist rental ordinance was stricken from the books. And it also snuffed out a lot of similar ordinances that were being considered across the state, right? So we wanted this to send a signal to the rest of the state like that this is not okay. If you're going to take someone's property, you got to have a process around that. If you're going to throw people out of their homes, you have to have a process for that. So um, that was a fun case months. And then where did you go after the ACLU? I thought I was going to go to the ACLU in, in New York um, or work for ACLU National. That's actually where the headquarters are. But as I was sort of about to put in my resume um, to those, you know, to ACLU National or state level ACLU, I saw this very random uh, kind of listing and, you know, my school's uh, job boards. And it was run by this organization that I didn't know the name of at the time. It's called Blue Ridge Labs out of the Robin Hood Foundation. Robinhood Foundation is one of the largest nonprofits here in New York. They've got, you know, $100 million, $200 million annual budget. And they run this very small program called Blue Ridge Labs, which essentially is an incubator, a technology incubator, and funds both for-profit and nonprofit organizations to develop technology to uh, have a positive impact on the populations that they, they care about. So the year I saw the job listing, what they were looking for is technology that helped um, bridge the access to justice gap, broadly speaking, right? It was a big thematic. They, they specifically requested that. They were looking for access to justice yeah, projects. Yeah, exactly. And so every year there's different thematic focuses, um, but that year just so happened to be um, access to justice. And uh, that's why they were looking for lawyers. Obviously, lawyers, technology, sometimes don't don't go, go together so hot. But yeah, I just saw it and I was like, this seems like an insanely interesting opportunity. You get paid to do it. You spend the first three months actually just talking to different stakeholders across the country about the civil justice space, judges, legal nonprofits, law firms, lawyer referral services, bar associations. All these doors were opened because of this program. At the time though, you don't have an idea in mind for what you're trying to build. You're just going out, you're just doing research. The program is very different than a traditional incubator where incubators usually apply with an idea, right? And with a team. And with Blue Ridge Labs, you don't have either. You don't have an idea and you don't have a theme or you don't have a team. But you knew that the end result after this research and you're talking to everybody in the legal community, you were going to build an app. That was the end goal, right? The end goal was, yeah, to build some piece of technology 
um, and either hand it off to a legal aid or legal nonprofit or, you know, some organization that could use it. Or the more likely path was that you would form either a nonprofit or a for-profit company that would try to carry that, that idea forward. So that's what I did. I joined alongside uh, about 20 other fellows. Um, they, were, they were from all different backgrounds. There were a few other lawyers, but mostly it was like engineers, full stack engineers, designers, product managers from all sorts of different backgrounds, really coming in from top uh, technology companies. And uh, yeah, we just spent about three months, not only trying to find a sort of product market fit, but also founder founder fit. It was a bit like uh, The Bachelor meets Shark Tank, right? Um, so, you know, you're going through, you're learning about the space, but you're also learning about the people that you're doing these design sprints with and figuring out, you know, who shares similar values, who has similar uh, interests. And uh, I, I was very fortunate to find two of our co-founders there. So Michael Asin, who's our CTO, and Toma Officer, who's design lead and also a front-end engineer and also a lapsed lawyer. So <laughs> going into Blue Ridge, you didn't know who you're going to be working with. You're just you get, you're trying to figure out, you're going to build a piece of tech, maybe get a team together and then see what comes of it. Is that kind of the MO? That's it. Yeah. Though I would say very pretty early on, most of us, and you know, you go out afterwards, maybe have a couple drinks back when people, you know, went to bars and you talk about, you know, what you're looking to get out of it. And there were some folks who were just like, you know, this seems like an interesting program. I'm going to do it for five months and then I'm going to go back to my old job. But most of the people who were there were like, look, I'm ready to build something that's just, you know, that for the next 10 years. And so that's what, you know, Toma and Michael were interested in doing is they wanted to go out, build a company and try to have a, a positive impact with it. That was your goal too, sounds like. Yeah, my goal was uh, maybe not that defined at the beginning. Um, I just saw this extraordinary opportunity and I'm, I'm a big believer that instead of having a plan, you just you look for interesting open doors and try to walk through them. Um, and so I just walked through the door and then and found myself quickly enamored of technology as as a, as a space more generally. And yeah, definitely can't see myself ever ever going back to practicing as as much as I enjoyed working at the ACLU, which I really did. Um, I felt like everything I was trying to do at the ACLU was geared towards how can I think about a system and have a positive impact on that system by, you know, maybe it's crafting a lawsuit or, you know, writing a, a piece of model legislation and then lobbying for it. But that always, you know, the more I did it, the more it felt several degrees removed from the actual leverage points that were making that change in the world. Whereas with a company, of course, you're still reliant on a lot of external factors for your success, a lot of luck, a lot of timing, but I feel like you're a little bit closer to those leverage points and you have more direct control over them. And I, I, that really appeals to me. At what point during your time at Blue Ridge do you come up with the idea for what would ultimately be a community lawyer? Yeah, well, so that's an interesting thing. We, about three months in, you, you have to like sort of form your team. And at that time, you more or less have an idea. And then you have two months to get to a prototype. Our prototype, what, what we built, actually what we spent the first year and a half building is completely different than what we are today. So and what was the uh, original iteration that you say is so different from what it is today? Yeah. So our original iteration was like, uh, we saw that there was, um, there were all these marketplace legal, uh, companies that had failed, um, for their, you know, the usual reasons, the 
high cost of acquisition, not a lot of uh, recurring revenue, et cetera, et cetera. And so we were like, how about instead of building a central marketplace, we build marketplace technology for lawyers. And then we essentially empower local networks of lawyers to run their own kind of localized marketplaces. So our first set of customers were bar associations and actually partnering with their uh, lawyer referral services. Um, and actually that product's still out, you know, we still uh, are running it. Um, it's, we're partnered with actually, I think about 40 bar associations across the country and help about 300,000 people connect with lawyers every year. But we came very, very interested, became very, very interested um, over time. And not just how do you, you know, help people find a lawyer, but how do you actually change the practice of law in a meaningful and positive way? And that's where sort of the idea for um, building this no-code platform for law really started to gestate. And then over the last two and a half years, that's been our our main focus. And, and that's definitely been where the growth has been and 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 uh, where, we are, where we invest most. Of am, am I characterizing the community lawyer app, right? It's a workflow automation tool. Is that how you describe it? Or? That's a great way to think about it. I mean, the way we talk about it is, you know, there's a lot of legal technology out there that is a solution, right? So it's like the, the company went out, they learned from customers and they said, okay, here's what the customer needs are. And then they tried to, you know, they built the solution. And with Community Lawyer, what we're trying to do is we're trying to say, we're not a solution, we're a toolkit, right? And what that toolkit empowers you to do is to take your subject matter expertise and really transform it into powerful leverageable automations. And so that, that's a lot of like, you know, high level speak and to make it a lot more concrete. The way we see that uh, play out is um, in its simplest form, a law firm might create like an intake app, right? That it's an online form, their customers fill it out, their clients fill it out. It pipes the data into a database. And then the law firm can do interesting things with that data. They can uh, run automations that then pipe it into a PDF, or into a Word document, or generate, you know, uh, an email template. Um, so that's kind of the most basic set of use cases we see, which is like intake and document automation. And those are sort of the core competencies of our automation software. But what we're seeing more and more is that lawyers are actually, lawyers and other legal professionals sort of broadly, are starting to build full stack SaaS platforms on community lawyer for the law. So they'll build a DIY tool that a company can use to manage all its public access files that they need to, that they need to post every time they have certain kinds of, of job listings in order to comply with uh, immigration laws. Um, so there, there's a, you know, they can build out a whole portal for that. Customers can log in, they can pay, you know, monthly fees, they can access their data, they can run their automations and the lawyer doesn't really have to be involved at all. You mentioned no code, no code, low code. Define that, if you would. You know, I, I'm a little bit more practical than a theorist, so I'm sure I'm sure there's greater minds that have um, delineated clearly the, the differences between the different camps. But I would say, you know, we think of ourselves as no code, um, though there's there's no getting around it. Like when you're talking about taking legal logic and translating that into an automation there's a high degree of specification that's required. And you can call that specification whatever you want. You can call it visual you know, representation. You can call it using a graphical user interface, or you can call it coding. Um, we don't particularly get caught up in the nomenclature, but 
I would say the one difference between our platform and, and sort of like writing code is that uh, we try to protect you against um, like, you know, if you miss a comma, it breaks your app, right? That code is extremely punishing and punishing in ways that uh, can be surprising to someone who's not used to it. So if you forget to indent when you're writing a line of code or forget a comma or you forget to close a bracket, everything breaks, right? Whereas with our, what we try to do with Community Lawyer is give you tools as the subject matter expert. So all you're focused on is taking your, the legal logic and the business rules in your head and translating that into an automation without worrying about like, did I close the bracket or something like that? You're not, you know, you're not writing brackets. You're not, it's not a free form text editor. We do have a graphical user interface that you can use to build your automation sort of block by block. After the break, Scott talks about the features of Community Lawyer and how people are using it in the real world, both for public and commercial purposes, including an app by legal aid organization that helps people generate rent moratorium documents. And he also talks about apps created by law firms that generate immigration paperwork for clients. We need to do more with less. That is the key takeaway nowadays from almost every survey of in-house counsel. But what if it didn't have to be that way? What if you actually could do more for less? By combining legal expertise and technology, Percipient enables legal teams to get more work done for less. Buried in contracts and sales is frustrated with turnaround time? We can help with that. Did you just get hit with a subpoena and reviewing 100,000 documents and files will tax your resources or cost you a small fortune in billable hours? We can help there too. Our team of legal professionals leverage tech and project management principles with the right amount of human oversight to deliver precise, efficient, and cost-effective legal solutions. Whether it's legal operations and contract management support, subpoena compliance, or document review, Percipient is your partner in really doing more for less. Percipient. Legal services powered by technology. We'll get back to my talk with Scott in just a second. I want to take this opportunity to let you know that if you want to subscribe to Technical Legal, you can find us pretty much wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, Google. When you're there, if you like us enough, we hope you leave us a favorable review. Also, as I mentioned earlier, for every episode of Technical Legal, there's a dedicated episode page at tlpodcast.com. On that page, you'll find more information about our guests and links to more information about the stuff they talk about. If you want to get a hold of me, you can find me on LinkedIn, you can find me on Twitter, or you can email me at cmain at percipient.co. That's C-M-A-I-N at percipient.co. Okay, let's get back to my conversation with Scott Kelly. We pick back up with the features of Community Lawyer. Let's talk about this, the, the structure and the features of, of Community Lawyer too. So like I told you when we first hopped on here today, I was been messing around with it for the last week. It's a really cool app. It is, is easy to use. The interface is easy to use. It's intuitive. But if I'm understanding it correctly, there's three high-level features. You got your database, which, which you mentioned. Then you also have the ability to create forms and documents, those types of automations, but then you have portals. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. So we, we think of Community Lawyer as composed of like three tools in your toolkit, right? So um, the first one is what we call a useful database. It's a database that's not just like an Excel spreadsheet. What it is, is it allows you to data type your columns. So you can say, you know, only numbers go here. This is a dropdown or this is, um, uh, maybe even like a rich text field where you could store a whole clauses, right? Not something you could do in Excel, um, but very much in line with the principles of if, you know, for those in your audience who've used Airtable, 
you know, or Notion or something like that. It's very similar to that. And importantly, it allows you to create relations between data, right? So you could have a client with many matters and you have a client's table and a matters table. Well, in Excel, there's no good way to kind of link those records. Um, in Community Lawyer, it's, it's, it's easy. You just create those link, links and then you can, you know, if you're running a document automation, you can pull in information not only about the case, but also about the connected client. So the right? database, I assume there's a couple ways you get data in there. Maybe you manually put it in there. But it's, it's, I assume, too, that you see in multiple forms. Data is being entered via these multiple forms also, and you can create a new form and grab from the database also. That's right. That's right. So you can, you can both pull data from a database via what we call an app, which is those online forms, or you can actually send data from your online form, your app, to the database, or you can do both. You know, we see that a lot. Maybe a firm will send out an initial consult form, you know, on the questionnaire and the client comes in and they fill in some initial data and maybe it generates an engagement letter form, right? And that all gets saved to the database. And then they have a great consultation and now it's time to uh, form, you know, an attorney-client relationship and they need to collect more information about the matter. They can send out another form directly from their database. So they can like select the row of the client and say, okay, send form, send out an online form, collect even more data that then gets stored and updates that row in the database. So when I say it's a useful database, it means you can run a lot of your automations directly from the database. And that sort of segues nicely into the second piece of Community Lawyer, which are, is the automation builder, what we call the app builder. Um, this is used primarily to build online intake forms or document assemblers um, is, is the primary use case, but allows you to essentially take all of the logic in your head, translate it into very complex intakes or, or template assemblers, and, uh, and then connect that with your database. So like an easy example, so we can put it, kind of visualize it is, you can mention intake, which I agree is, you know, you can take baby steps, start there, but think about all the time lawyers can save automating their intake. A client can come online, enter their info, give a little bit, brief bit about what they're being retained for, and your app will generate the document, maybe a retainer agreement or a further questionnaire. It, it also integrates with several other apps out there. Clio, I know I saw Hello Sign, so you can get this stuff signed right there online. Um, it, payment, Stripe, uh, yep. LawPay. So you can even collect your payments right there via an API integration, right? Yeah. So to give you a great example, there's this, uh, this wonderful uh, immigration firm that serves primarily Silicon Valley um, startups. And the way they use Community Lawyer is... Every time they have like a new potential client, they log into their own law firm's, you know, built uh, portal and they run, you know, the app that says, okay, send out the scheduling. Like they type in the user's email that generates an email to that user that has a link that they can click. They go through, answer some questions. They collect a hello sign signature on a consultation agreement. If depending on the logic, the type of case um, they might collect a consultation fee, and then we integrate with both Stripe and LawPay. In their case, they're using LawPay because they're you know trust fund accounting. They they want to um, deal with that, and uh, and then that all that information, then including the document, then all gets sent back to the database and stored right there, so that the law firm can see it and they get notified as soon as everything's completed. And then let's talk about the third piece. You kind of alluded to it there just a second ago, the portal piece. What's that? What's the difference between a portal versus the app versus the database? The best way to think about a portal is uh, it's, it's kid gloves, kind of, is, is the way to think about it. So, you know, 
the, the way we see a law firm typically use community lawyer is they'll have like one or two folks at the law firm who really are the builders, right? They build all the automations, they build the online forums, the, the database, the document assemblers, all that, right? And then the rest of the, the folks at the law firm, they just want to be able to use the database and they just want to be able to use the apps. They couldn't care less about how it was built and they don't want to be mucking around with the system that's used to actually build you know, the automations because they could break it, right? And they're afraid of breaking it. And so what client portals allow you to do, and they, they're really just portals. We, we call them client portals, but they can be used internally at law firms and for clients as well. But what it allows for a law firm to do is to say, hey, other lawyers at my firm, just go to this link. You can create an account or log into an account that I provisioned to you. And when you go inside, you'll see the data that I want you to see. You'll see the apps that I want you to have access to. You can run those apps. You can store data in the database, but you can't change the apps and you can't change the database. You can't break anything, right? So it's a nice firm branded sort of uh, portal that either clients or even the law firm can just go into, access what they need, the automations that they need to have access to without ever um, worrying about anything else. Is this too simplistic to say it's maybe a more user-friendly user interface, the portal? Yep. It's a more user-friendly interface and it's also branded. So uh, a lot of folks who are using Community Lawyer probably don't even know they're using Community Lawyer because they're going to this portal um, instead, which is branded to the firm or to the the company that's, that's built the automation on Community Lawyer. I know a lot of your focus is in the public interest and I know a lot of people a lot of organizations that are using it are bar associations, are legal aid associations. But you've also mentioned law firm use cases. And I, I assume, and there's no reason they shouldn't, because automation is a need within corporations too. I assume you have corporate clients too? Yeah. I, to be honest, our, our biggest user class by far are law firms and, and, and companies, right? Um, and, and that's very much part of our mission. I think there's a lot of, a lot of folks who, you know, they think of, oh, I'm trying to have a positive impact on the world. And therefore, I, you know, stay away from those companies who, who have bottom lines and want to make money. Um, but for us, we always thought of the sort of justice gap as having kind of, uh, there was two important ways to attack it. So one was by scaling up um, legal aid organizations that are providing free legal assistance to the public by giving them tools to really leverage the scarce resources that they have. Right. And so we're doing that. We give away, uh, you know, free seats to community lawyer, um, to legal aid organizations across the country. And they're using community lawyer at scale to really, um, to really help people out. But what we also see as an, an equally, if not more important part of the picture is helping a law firms, particularly I'd say solo, small, medium-sized law firms who are providing kind of like the bread and butter legal services of immigration, family law, criminal law, you know, uh, consumer law, empowering them with these automation tools so that they can offer their services more efficiently and more affordably. So you're attacking sort of that justice gap by making it both more affordable. So people on the margins um, in terms of whether they're willing to pay for legal services or not, are able to suddenly, you know, access those legal services. And also people who are never going to be reached by, you know, a private market are now getting legal services because legal aid organizations are able to help them. So yeah, very much, uh, you know, working hand in hand with a lot of law firms and companies to help them uh, sort of leverage the impact of their, their expertise. 
But you founded the company as a public benefit corporation, right? Yeah, but but very much realizing that it was a it was a market breakdown that we were looking at attacking, and so um, we're trying to you know give tools to make the the market more efficient, uh, more transparent, and uh, behave more like a normal market. <laughs> so let's talk about some of those use cases. Let's let's start with the public sector. I saw some cool I saw some cool apps done by some legal aid companies. I saw one where it was for rent abatement during the COVID. I think you could generate a form. That would be sent to landlords. It was self-serve. I think I also saw another one. Uh, State down south, legal aid organization had created a, a domestic law questionnaire. Like, do you need a divorce lawyer? Like, what what, what happens next? How, how do you go about this? What are some other use cases in this public sector that you you really think are cool? I would call out two of them. One of them you mentioned, but it just does a little bit more detail on it. There is a statewide legal aid organization in Kentucky that took the recent CDC uh, moratorium, which basically said that if you can't afford your rent, you can send this form to your landlord and then your landlord's not able to evict you um, for the rest of the year, right? There's just can't because you've affirmatively ta- availed yourself of, of this, um, this protection, but it's an affirmative uh, protection. So you have, to, you have to send the form and people don't realize like it might sound simple. It's a simple form. You know, you fill it out and you just, you mail it. But for an individual to actually go, they, they need a printer. They need uh, to know about the form in the first place. They need to know exactly how to fill it out. They've got to sign it. They've got to scan it, or they, they have to go to the post office and postmark it, do all this. Well, this uh, uh, legal aid organization in Kentucky said, hey, let's make this dead simple, right? Simple app. You go through it. We guide you question by question provide you the information you need. And then at the end, when you say you're ready, you get a choice between you can either download the form yourself or you can send it to your landlord directly from the app via an email attachment. And you know they built this in, over the course of about a week, maybe a little bit less, three or four days. It was just one person at the organization. Ben Carter is amazing. And uh, they've now helped, I think it's around 10,000 people avoid eviction from their homes. Just that one app, um, has helped that many people. So it's, it's it really had an extraordinary impact. Another really cool use case uh, that we saw recently was there's an organization run by Amanda Brown, who is called the Lagniap Law Lab. I, I might've butchered that first word, but they're essentially a technology, uh, legal technology shop that's been hired by the uh, Louisiana Bar Foundation to build a statewide triage portal that any person in Louisiana can go to and they could say, here's my legal need, answer some questions, and then get intelligently routed to either uh, self-help resources, uh, the court they need to be uh, directed to, or get a list of relevant uh, legal service organizations, legal aid organizations directly through the app. So these are called portal projects. And there's actually been a whole host of these that have been tried, that various states have tried to build um, for years and years and years. And very few of them have gotten off off the ground, to be honest. Um, and there's been a lot of money poured into them. At one point, you know, Microsoft was involved and over a million dollars has probably gone into these portal projects. And, not, and very, very few, like I said, have gotten off their feet. Amanda, what she did is she used Webflow, which is, you know, uh, a no-code uh, website builder to build the kind of static website. And she used Community Lawyer to build the apps that intelligently routed people to legal resources for a budget of about you know, $3,000. And she launched this statewide 
and was able to spin up this thing that really, you know, for other, in other attempts, it cost $300,000 and still hadn't gone live. So it really shows you the power, not just of community lawyer, but of no code tools in general. It's the cost of software development is just radically decreasing over the last 10 years. And I think that's really going to change the way a lot of professions um, provide their services. And you mentioned uh, in that instance there, that, that example, there was a standalone website that residents of Louisiana can go to. To get to the actual apps built on Community Lawyer, I see it's an embed code on the website. Is that how they're put out to the public? Oh, well, so the nice thing about Community Lawyer is it's, uh, you can uh, set it up so it's, it's served from the, your, the same domain as your static website. And it's and it looks exactly the same, so the logo is the same, the colors. So it's actually just a button. You know, you push a button on the main side, and you're like, you know, I need uh, legal aid organizations, and it takes you through kind of like a TurboTax like online form. And then at the end, you get a report. It lists all the legal organizations that are relevant to you, your legal issue, your county. From the end user's perspective, they're they were always on the same website. It never went anywhere. And the other use case that I saw, it seemed to be, I think there was a lawyer in Australia, I think is a case study on your site. Seems to me that another popular use case or, or effective use case for smaller law firms, or actually big law firms too could use this, where you've got kind of a, a volume type of legal work that you're doing, be it trusted estates or whatever. And it's taking a lot of time and it's costing customers a lot of money. But through the app, you automate these different pieces. And not only does it save time, it's cheaper for the client. A couple examples there too, right? Yeah. So, I mean, to give you one example that I think is just really extraordinary is um, there's this uh, there's this great immigration firm. They're one of the larger dedicated immigration firms in the country uh, called Siskin Susser. We interviewed Greg. Oh, you did? Yeah. Greg, yeah. Greg and, and, and uh, Jason and, and Josh and the whole team is, is amazing. But yeah, so they essentially, and this is going sort of publicly live at the end of this year, early next year, but they've built a set of automations that essentially walk any hospital in the United States through the very, very complex regulatory regime that you have to go through. I remember through. talking about this on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. In, in, order to, um, in order to hire a doctor from abroad. Obviously, in a lot of rural communities or, you know, given, you know, pandemics like this, where maybe doctors are like, you know, some doctors are like, I, you know, it's time to retire, maybe. Um, there's never been a more pressing need to be able to, like, bring in talent from overseas. And you can imagine there's so many overlapping federal and state and regional regulatory, you know, regulations that impact your ability to hire those folks. And so the way that they used to have to provide that service was they would sit down with the hospital and Siskin Sussers, you know, team would walk them through this questionnaire and, you know, take a bunch of notes. And then they would go back and they would manually provide this like report that sort of said, okay, on, on these factors, you're good to go on these factors, you know, here's some flags, here's how you resolve them. And maybe here are some factors where it's a red flag. You can't move forward with this particular posting. Right. And so they would create this huge report and it took a lot of time, right? And they were, you know, like a lot of law firms, they were constrained in providing that service based on the type, the method of providing services, which is one to one. So their man hours was a cap on the number of uh, the number of hospitals that they could serve. But what they've done is they built an automation that doesn't require any intervention by the firm, and a hospital can just go through 
They can answer the questions. It pulls in data from really complex data sets like wage and labor. I think per county wage data on a per profession basis, pulls it in, runs analysis on that. It takes into account all the different regulatory regimes. And at the very end of it, and it's a pretty short survey, maybe you know, like 20 minutes, 30 minutes. At the end of that, it generates a great report that tells the hospital exactly how they can move forward in hiring this doctor from abroad. So now a service that used to take a lot of man hours and could only allow them to serve maybe a dozen or so hospitals um, at a time, literally they can provide to any hospital in the United States. Pretty extraordinary. Yeah, I remember when I interviewed uh, Greg a few episodes back, he was talking about this. And I think it was just now the the seeds for this idea were in his mind. That's interesting. That's cool they did that. So then finally, you you mentioned this. I just went last week to attend virtually the uh, CLOCK, Corporate Legal Operations Consortium Conference. And one of the things that was really prevalent, I, I kept seeing in the comments people talking about, is bringing workflow automation into corporate legal departments. What are some examples that you've seen there on Community Lawyer where companies have, have automated some of their processes that their lawyers were doing? Yeah, so what we generally see are uh, sort of smaller firms that work with uh, general counsel and developing tools for general counsel. So one that we recently saw launch on Community Lawyer was NDAs are a pain for you know any company, the management of NDAs, they've got their own NDAs. They might be situational depending on like, oh, you've got one set, you, you know, you've got a set of language that applies to sales, you've got a set that applies to the uh, engineering department. And then you also have to account for, okay, maybe we're in a negotiation where we have to accept the NDA from the other organization. So it's not only like managing the review of all those NDAs, but also sending them out for signature, getting those documents back and storing them all in one place. Well, we had a user um, who recently, or I think, yeah, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, launched a service that basically any general counsel can sign up for, but they're targeting to kind of like mid-sized companies to smaller companies um, that they can just sign up for an account and they can use this uh, self-serve tool to fully manage all their um, NDA workflows including incorporating in their own custom language and clauses that vary by department. So again, everything from collecting e-signatures to storing the NDAs, um, it's all done by this product. I think it's you know going to provide a lot of value to, to their customers. If a lawyer, legal organization, in-house corporate lawyer is thinking about implementing workflow automation, document automation uh, into their practice, what's the first step? Where do you suggest they start? Funnily enough, the the best place to start if you're looking into workflow automation is with a pen and paper. We tell this to our users all the time, but using community lawyer is going to be the easiest part about building your automation. And that's still going to be, you know, not to get around it for some complex automations, that's going to be difficult. But the really hard part of automation in law firms is making sure that that automation is geared towards delivering a clear value, that the amount of time you'd have to spend to actually build that automation and and think through every last edge case, because software is punishing, you know, you have to kind of game out every edge case. If the time it's going to take to sort of spec all that out is going to be worth it, worth that value that you identified. Um, And then once you've done all that, then 
it's time to just start writing it out, however you feel comfortable doing it. And, and we recommend not using any technology when you're plotting out sort of your automations. Or if you are, use something like a spreadsheet or maybe like a, a, something that helps you draw some charts um, just so you can map out the basic business logic of what you're trying to build. And then once you feel really comfortable with your spec, then it's time to use a tool like Community Lawyer. Um, of course, I would say you should use Community Lawyer specifically, but there's a lot of great tools out there. I'd say one of the advantages that we have over other kind of no-code tools in the legal space is we do have a very generous free tier. So anyone can go, they can build apps of almost infinite complexity, test them out, see how they work, and they don't have to pay a dime. It's only when they want to launch those in production, they may need to, to upgrade. A lot of other you know tools that are out there, you kind of have to like sit through a demo before you can even like figure out what the pricing is. Or we, we don't believe that. Just come in, play around. It's a toolbox. It's a sandbox. Have fun. Let's uh, build a better uh, legal services uh, industry. Yeah, the pen and paper, it's interesting. Time and time again, when I have guests on the podcast and I'm asking how they do things, they, they, the first step, step number one is map the process. Map the process. You don't even open your computer. So that, that, that makes sense. makes total sense. Scott, thanks for your time today. If people want to get a hold of you, how do they find you? Yeah. So if you want to get a hold of me specifically, you can email me at scott, that's S-C-O-T-T, at community.lawyer. Uh, no dot com or anything like that, just community.lawyer. And yeah, if you want to check out our company more broadly, um, you can go to community.lawyer. Uh, we've got great learning materials. You can always book a, a, you know, a, a call with one of our team members and just chat about your automation and we're here to help. So uh, yeah, I hope to hear from uh, some, of your, some of your listeners. So that's all we have for today. I appreciate you listening. If you want to get a hold of me, you can find me on LinkedIn or email me at cmain at percipient.co. That's C-M-A-I-N at percipient.co. If you want to subscribe, you can find us on most major podcast platforms. If you like us enough, I hope you give us a favorable review. Until next time, this has been Technically Legal.